Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. As the U.S. Secretary of State heads south to Mexico, a massive migrant caravan is making its way north toward the border. The lead starts right now. Senior U.S. officials are urging their Mexican counterparts to do a lot more to drive down the number of border encounters. These crucial meetings come as a record number of migrants is overwhelming both sides of the border. And now the Biden administration is facing a barrage of complaints from elected officials who were usually on his side. We'll explain. And talking 2024, the latest development in another attempt to keep Trump's name off a state primary ballot next year. How one consequential state responded to a challenge to Trump's eligibility. And why is it that Americans are spending so confidently, yet so many don't think the economy is doing well? We'll bring in two bright minds on the finances and the feeling heading into the new year. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Bianca Goladriga in for Jake Tapper. Right now, top officials of the Biden administration are in Mexico looking for help in slowing the surge of migrants at the southern U.S. border. The pictures from the border show how urgent the crisis has become. Border authorities apprehended around 6,000 migrants along the U.S.-Mexico border yesterday. But that's a drop from what we've been seeing. Earlier this month, there were 10,000 apprehensions in a single day. Right now, 11,000 migrants are waiting just across the border in Mexico, 3,800 in Tijuana, and another 7,000 near the southern tip of Texas. And that's why Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas are in Mexico City as we speak. Let's start the hour with CNN Priscilla Alvarez, who's at the White House for us. And Priscilla, U.S. officials are essentially trying to play every lever they can to ease the migrant surge. What specific requests are they making? Well, and they're trying to get Mexico to also implement a series of measures to drive down these border crossings. And it's clear that this is an urgent moment for the White House simply by who is participating in this meeting. The president deploying some of his highest ranking officials to talk with the Mexican president and some members of his cabinet about what more can be done to stem the flow of migration. Now, officials tell me these asks include, for example, moving migrants who are in the northern part of Mexico further south, sort of decongesting that area of the border. Also controlling railways, which are often used by migrants to more quickly get to the U.S. southern border and providing incentives like visas so that migrants stay in Mexico and avoid journeying to the U.S. southern border. Now, all of this is an extension of a call that occurred last week 
between President Biden and Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador were both agreed that additional enforcement is urgently needed. Now, we know that numbers have dropped slightly along the U.S.-Mexico border. A Homeland Security official telling me that yesterday encounters were around 6,000, down from a few days ago when they were surpassing 10,000 arrests. But that's not sustainable. That still raises alarm bells and is overwhelming federal, state, and city resources, as we have heard from border towns. So the president, under increasing pressure here, to try to get some solutions with Mexico to stem this flow. Priscilla, how much leverage does the U.S. actually have over Mexico here? Well, the U.S. and Mexico both benefit from the stem uh, or from slowing down the flow of migrants to the U.S. southern border. One of the most obvious examples is ports of entry. That's used for trade, and the two are trading partners. So we saw earlier this month that those ports, some of them, had to be suspended so that personnel could move to help process migrants. That is a huge blow to the two trading partners. So that is part of the conversation here. They don't want to see that happen again. And we have seen Mexico take some of the steps that I mentioned to you earlier, and it does yield results. The question, though, is how long can Mexico sustain that when they're also dealing with limited capacity? So there are multiple obstacles that the U.S. and Mexico are trying to overcome here. To show you how much of a challenge this has been, the year started with President Biden in Mexico with his counterpart talking about tackling migration. We're now ending the year, and the two are still trying to wrap their arms around this issue. It's a challenge that U.S. presidents and Mexican presidents have struggled with for many years now. Priscilla Alvarez, thank you. Well, now let's get a look at what's happening along the border. CNN's Rosa Flores is in Eagle Pass, Texas for us. Uh, Rosa, listen to what the mayor of Eagle Pass told CNN earlier today. Our city here in Eagle Pass, we've been getting slammed with two to 3,000 people a day. And it's just a, an unfair, unethical situation. What's going on here in Eagle Pass, we feel ignored by the federal government. Rosa, is that in line with what you've been seeing and hearing down there? It absolutely is. And not just from the mayor. I can tell you from speaking to the Maverick County Sheriff here in Eagle Pass, where I am, and other border sheriffs have told me the exact same thing, that they feel abandoned by the federal government. Many of them have invited President Joe Biden to visit their communities. They would like for the president to see with his own eyes, the impacts to border communities. Um, and that's what I hear over and over. And that's why some of these officials tell me that even though they don't agree with everything that Texas Governor Greg Abbott is doing uh, here in his state, taking border security into his own hands, deploying those controversial border buoys, deploying the concertina wire, the containers that you might see behind me too that sometimes line the river, the busing of migrants and now the flying of migrants from Texas to blue states. A lot of officials have told me that they don't agree with everything that Governor Greg Abbott is doing, but they always say, Rosa, but he's at least doing something. He's trying something. He's trying to help border communities. And these individuals appreciate that. Now, has Texas actually stopped illegal immigration? The answer is no. Have these border buoys actually stopped migrants from crossing the Rio Grande? Absolutely not. I've watched it with my own eyes. They simply walk around the border buoys. But 
again, individuals here in the state of Texas are appreciative that the governor is doing something. Now, this, um, the governor's effort is called Operation Lone Star. It's costing Texas taxpayers billions of dollars. And now even some of the uh, individuals who supported the governor say that his promises have fallen short. Take a listen. There comes a point when after doing this for two, two and a half years, we can't continue just throwing money at this, expecting for the border issue and the migrant issue to go away. We need to think outside the box and we need to make sure that we hold ourselves as the legislature and Governor Abbott holds himself accountable to the taxpayers. This is Texas taxpayers' monies that we've been spending and what do we have for it? And Biana, that was Texas State Representative Eddie Morales, and he also says that given those talks that are happening in Mexico, he wish, wishes that Governor Abbott had a seat at the table. We, of course, know that he's not there, but he really wished that, that he could be a part of the conversation because the governor is taking immigration into his own hands. And because Biana. this is happening in his own state. Uh, Rosa Flores in Eagle Pass, Texas, thank you. Well, let's discuss this and more with Democratic strategist Karen Finney and National Review editor Ramesh Panuru. Welcome, both of you. Karen, let me start with you, because immigration is one of the biggest challenges that President Biden is facing right now. Recent polling shows that his approval rating on immigration is only 26 percent, with 69 percent disapproving. What does the administration need to do to turn that around and do it quickly? Well, I think you saw um, the president actually to do one of the things uh, that needs to be done, and that is to get a deal with Congress to have additional resources to help surge to those border communities to help with that influx and to help other communities that are dealing with the influx. Unfortunately, you know, that was about $14 billion in the deal that President Biden put on the table. The Republicans in Congress left town, so that's a left to be done. But I think it shows that it's the president and the and Congress that have a role in this. And the president's job is to enforce the laws on the books and surge resources when possible. In terms of our system, I think we need, I think we've known for a long time. It's a pretty real harsh. Reform. Yeah, it's a pretty harsh critique to hear from the mayor of Eagle Pass so that they just feel ignored there. We hear from Democratic mayors yeah. in major U.S. cities that are clamoring for better coordination in coping with the migrants, yeah. especially the cities that keep getting those busloads of migrants from Texas. I want you to listen to what Democrat Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson told our Parpy Harlow this morning. Without real significant um, investment from our federal government, it won't just be the city of Chicago that won't be able to maintain this mission. It's the entire country that is now at stake. But in no way um, what the state of Texas is doing um, is helping the cause. So, Karen, we've heard similar frustration from the mayor of New York. Is there any sense that the Biden administration is going to help states work together on this? Well, I think what they're trying, a couple of things. Number one, what the mayor there was talking about is it's not helpful, it's harmful, it's harmful to the individuals as well when you've got the governor of Texas flying people up to Chicago. Um, so that's one piece of it. But yeah, I think the administration needs to do more to work with communities. Again, he was, the president was trying to get more resources to be able to do that. Uh, so when Congress returns, perhaps we can get that done. But, and as well as, um, you know, coordinating resources a little bit better. Look, it's a really tough issue. And actually, you know, research shows that about 69% of Americans want a balanced approach 
to how we deal with this. And that means both dealing with the, as well as re, you know, making sure that we have humane pathways to citizenship for those who are here. But I think the system overall needs reform and that's gonna take Congress and the president working together. Ramesh, let me move on um, to the race for the Republican presidential nomination. Nikki Haley is starting a campaign swing through New Hampshire, hoping to close the gap with former President Trump. But Haley already has had some help from New Hampshire's governor, whose endorsement of Haley is featured in a new ad. Watch. She's a leader who builds people up. She's a live free or die Republican who understands fiscal responsibility and individual liberty. She's a new generation of conservative leadership who can help leave behind the chaos and the drama of the past. So having watched that and seen a bit of a spike in popularity there, surge for her, do you think the Trump campaign is legitimately concerned about her recent rise? Well, I think the Trump campaign is pretty optimistic about its chances in the primary and justifiably so. Uh, but there's no question that it has been turning more of its fire against Nikki Haley um, in recent weeks uh, and is really um, targeting her more than Governor DeSantis of Florida at this point. And I think that that is a clear response to the polling, which has shown her having some momentum. In the meantime, uh, Ramesh Vivek Ramaswamy's campaign is signaling the shift away from TV ads in Iowa, supposedly as part of a strategy to target more specific voters more effectively. But what exactly does that indicate to you about his campaign and its longevity and his right. chances, really, in Iowa next month? So Ramaswamy uh, is saying that spending a lot of money on television ads is uh, something that only low IQ candidates do. Um, this after he spent more than four and a half million dollars on such ads. Uh, and I think that he does have enough of an IQ to see that it's not helping him. It's not working for him. But I think the problem isn't a the problem for his campaign has not been which media he uses. The problem is that as more people have gotten familiar with him, the less they've liked yes. him. Yeah, Karen, you're nodding your head. I don't think there's going to be much love lost if yeah. he leaves sooner rather than later <laughs> among the other candidates. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, look, candidates always say it's about. What they really mean is, you know, I'm not breaking through. So clearly he's going to try to do the best he can with, you know, they talked about they're going to do more direct mail. Uh, okay. And see who they turn out. I actually think the best thing about January is it may be the last month we actually have to deal with Vivek Ramaswamy in the context of him as a candidate. I suspect we'll be hearing a lot from him throughout the campaign after he endorsed, endorses uh, President, former President Trump. All right, Karen Finney, Ramesh Panuru, thank you so much. Coming up, huge news in a major 14th Amendment lawsuit brought by a group trying to keep former President Trump off the primary ballot in Michigan. How this ruling is different from a recent ruling in Colorado. And even though inflation is cooling off, consumers say prices are still hitting them hard. So what to make of huge holiday spending? We'll discuss the counterintuitive signs on the economy. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. 
your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In our Law and Justice lead, we are following two major legal developments today in cases involving former President Trump. First, the Michigan State Supreme Court has rejected an effort to kick Donald Trump off of the state's 2024 primary ballot. The ruling comes just eight days after the Colorado State Supreme Court's decision to disqualify Trump from appearing on that state's Republican primary ballot over the Constitution's insurrectionist ban. Let's bring in CNN's Jessica Schneider and CNN's Kristen Holmes for more on this. So, Jessica, these are two very different rulings, but they were also very different legal proceedings. Walk us through what happened in Michigan. Yeah, so really Colorado and Michigan, very different. I mean, Colorado, Biana was a lot more momentous because the Supreme Court there really got to the meat of the issue when they decided to take Trump off the ballot there. Of course, that opinion is paused until Trump actually appeals this. But they really decided the heart of this, going into the 14th Amendment, saying that Trump did engage in insurrection, also saying because of that, that he should be taken off the ballot. When it came to Michigan today, they really just rubber stamped a lower court saying, look, this case should not be decided by the courts here. And also saying that the secretary of state in Michigan does not have the power to decide on the eligibility of a presidential candidate when it comes to the primary. So the Michigan court really not going to the merits of this case. It's possible, though, eventually the U.S. Supreme Court could get to the merits on this case. We're expecting that Trump's team will file an appeal to the Colorado decision before January 4th. And if the U.S. Supreme Court takes it up, they could go into what exactly the 14th Amendment means with this insurrection ban, or the Supreme Court could avoid the issue just like Michigan did and just say this isn't for the courts to decide. This is really a political issue. Yeah, a really short statement from the Michigan Supreme Court there. How do these two decisions, Jessica, compare to other efforts across the country to remove Trump from 2024 ballots? We've really seen a flurry of these cases where challengers have tried to take Trump off the ballot in several states. A lot of these cases have been dismissed immediately because the challengers just haven't been the right people to bring these cases. But we've seen a number of them. I mean, Colorado, the most momentous, they're ruling that Trump should be taken off the ballot. But these challenges have been rejected in several states, Arizona, Michigan, Minnesota, and New Hampshire. There's also one case pending in Oregon still. And we also know that the main secretary of state is expected to issue a decision on whether Trump should be taken off the ballot there. That's an interesting case because it goes before the secretary of state and the hearing first before it goes to the courts. So no matter what the secretary of state decides, it's likely that it will get appealed. But these are ongoing issues in several states here, Biana. Yeah, Kristen, this Michigan decision, it's hard not to see it as a kind of victory for the former president in a key battleground state. What is he saying about it? 
Well, Bianca, they have long suspected that most of these cases would get thrown out just because, as Jessica said, you know, in Arizona, in Minnesota, in New Hampshire, they had been rejected and really never even made it past the first round. But they are celebrating this, what they perceive to be a win in Michigan, particularly after the Supreme Court in Colorado's ruling. This is what Donald Trump said. He said, the Michigan Supreme Court has strongly and rightfully denied the desperate Democratic attempt to take the leading candidate in the 2024 presidential election, me, off the ballot in the great state of Michigan. As you know, the Michigan is a swing state. It's going to be critical in 2024. It's going to be particularly contentious if Donald Trump is the GOP nominee. This is considered a win for them, and it's something that they're likely to include in a potential uh, appeal to the decision in Colorado. Let's turn now to the 2020 election subversion trial uh, where special counsel Jack Smith filed a motion seeking to block Donald Trump from making certain comments in front of a potential jury. Jessica, what exactly is Smith trying to stop Trump from saying here? He's really trying to preemptively tamp down on Trump's penchant for speaking about court cases. We've seen it in any of these court cases that Donald Trump is facing. So what Jack Smith's team did here today, they filed a motion before uh, the district court that's going to be eventually hearing the trial in this case, saying, look, we want you to stop Donald Trump from talking about his claims that this is a politically motivated prosecution, that this has anything to do with the Biden administration directing the special counsel to bring this case. We also want you to stop Donald Trump talking about his claims that he's immune from this prosecution because that's an issue that's being decided by the appeals court. So Jack Smith put it this way in this filing, saying the court should not permit the defendant to turn the courtroom into a forum in which he propagates irrelevant disinformation and should reject his attempt to inject politics into this proceeding. And, you know, Bianca, this filing is actually pretty notable from Jack Smith because all of the proceedings in this case have been paused while this appeals issue plays out, but Jack Smith continues to file in the district court because he wants to keep things moving along in hopes that they'll be able to preserve that March 4th trial start date that's currently set with the way the appeals um, is is going here. Um, January 9th will be the oral arguments. It's unlikely that that date will stick, but Jack Smith and his team are trying everything they can to keep that date in place and not let it slide. Kristen, is there any sense that Trump and the people around him are concerned about these filings? Well, Bianca, just like the Jack Smith wants to keep that date, Donald Trump's team wants to delay this trial as long as possible. So we actually have heard from the former president, instead of taking issue with any of the substance of what was in that filing, instead he's taking issue with the filing itself, saying that if Judge Chuckin said that all legal proceedings are on hold, if there is this pause, why is he still continuing to file motions? That is what they are focused on right now. And again, this goes to their larger larger scale legal process, what they are wanting to do here, which is delay all of these trials, but now particularly looking at this one that was supposed to be uh, scheduled for March 4th as long as possible and hopefully till after the election. It's going to be a very busy January. Uh, Jessica (laughs) Schneider, Kristen Holmes, thank you. Well, coming up, after more than 11 weeks of fighting triggered by Hamas's deadly October 7th attacks on Israel, the U.S. is pressing Israel to focus on high-value Hamas targets. Up next, as shelling continues, CNN has a look at the aftermath of one deadly strike. 
In our world lead, as the Israel Defense Forces push deeper into southern Gaza, Israeli officials are warning the war against Hamas could continue well into the new year. This as the U.S. presses Israel to minimize the number of civilian casualties. Israel has hit Hamas in Gaza with airstrikes for over two months in the wake of Hamas's October 7th attacks. Today, the Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health in Gaza says 20 people were killed in an airstrike near a hospital in Khan Yunus. CNN obtained video of the aftermath, and we want to warn you it is graphic. Here's Will Ripley. Smoke rises over southern Gaza, haunting from a distance, horrifying up close. Video obtained by CNN showing a sidewalk covered in blood and bodies. Men, women, children, at least 20 dead from yet another Israeli airstrike, this time near a hospital. The Hamas-controlled health ministry says CNN is not able to independently verify the staggering death toll, around 21,000 and rising. The wounded rushed to Al-Amal Hospital, one of a handful still operating. In the parking lot, pandemonium. Doctors and nurses, already overwhelmed, scramble to save lives. An international team of surgeons gaining access to emergency rooms on life support. Doctors warn supplies are running dangerously low, severely limiting treatment of trauma patients, some dying as they wait for urgent care. Civilian casualties climbing fast, more than 55,000 injured since October 7th, the Hamas health ministry says. Inside a crowded medical tent in Jabalia, Palestinian Red Crescent medics treating a tidal wave of patients. Wounded women and children, many injuries, horrific. The pile of body bags growing by the hour. At times, the dead seem to outnumber the living. Naval ships comb the coast as drones hover overhead, documenting the destruction, explosion after explosion. The IDF targeting tunnels used by Hamas fighters, hitting both military and civilian infrastructure. The Israeli offensive in Gaza showing no signs of easing up. Israel's goal to root out Hamas leaders. An edited video circulating on social media appears to show Palestinian men and at least two children detained, stripped by the Israel Defense Forces in a stadium in northern Gaza. The fighting is fierce. The offensive expected to transition into a slower intensity mobile campaign. Soon, Israel says, the question haunting Israeli leaders, will the change in strategy be effective? Will it neutralize Hamas's military power? Israeli artillery hitting a UN-run school in central Gaza, leaving holes in the walls, blood on the floors, next to the sleeping mats of displaced families. At this school in Rafah, some of those families crowd into classrooms, sharing what little food and water they have. Supplies are running low after 10 long weeks of war. The Palestinian Prime Minister says Israel is starving people to death. This teacher's lesson, a welcome distraction for children, surrounded by suffering and death, trying to find some semblance of a normal life. But a normal life may prove elusive for children in Gaza for many months to come. Back to that video that we showed you, there were actually two children in the video of that stadium in Gaza with men 
uh, detained by the IDF who were stripped shirtless. At least two children seen in the video. CNN has reached out for an explanation. Uh, we don't know exactly when this video was taken. We can't independently verify it. It was posted on Christmas Eve. Uh, but in the past, the IDF has said that they strip these people down because they need to check them for explosives. And in fact, Bianca, uh, just a matter of days ago, IDF claims they found in one of the houses that they raided in Gaza an explosive vest that had been modified for a child to wear. All right, Bull Ripley, thank you. Still ahead for us, the numbers look better, but when it comes to the U.S. economy, consumers are still feeling gloomy. So why the disconnect? We'll discuss up next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. In our money lead, Americans spent a lot this holiday season. Retail sales are up about 3% over the last year. But that spending is only barely outpacing inflation. And even though we're spending a little more, a lot of Americans say they're not feeling great about the overall economy. Douglas Holtz again is here to discuss. He's the president of American Action Forum and the former director of the Congressional Budget Office. Doug, uh, good to see you. A lot of your colleagues, both Thank Republican you. and Democrat, thought that inflation would be much harder to tame and that the Fed's aggressive response would trigger a recession at this point. That didn't happen, and it doesn't look like it will anytime soon. So give us your expert take on the state of the U.S. economy right now. Well, I think that's uh, uh, exactly right. We did expect to have a recession late this year, and that didn't uh, develop. Uh, that's a tribute to the strength of the U.S. consumer. And going forward, the re I think one of the real issues is, will they keep it up? Uh, uh, as you know, employment is quite high, unemployment is very low. We've finally seen solid real wage growth, wages growing faster than inflation in the past six months. So that's uh, both uh, uh, things in the right direction. The bad news is we've seen rising credit card uh, debt and delinquencies. We've seen the savings rate fall by two full percentage points over the second half of this year. So that looks like a household sector that's digging deeper into its uh, resources to, to keep the spending up. And you do wonder how long that will keep up. I want to get to the bad news in just a minute, because the real head scratcher here is despite the relative good news in the economy, according to recent polling, Americans right. aren't satisfied with President Biden's handling of it, which objectively, as you just noted, is in decent shape right now and much stronger than most other developed nations. Do you think people's partisan politics play a role in how they feel or at least say they feel about the economy? Well, certainly for a long time, if you looked at the uh, index of consumer sentiment, that was a, a very partisan indicator. Uh, the, the party that was out of office was really dour on the economy. And the party that was in office was far more um, uh, confident and, and upbeat. What was really striking is that in the first two years of the Biden administration, that went away. And I, I think what the administration is really facing is the hangover of a 2021 where, you know, inflation went grew by seven tenths of a percent faster than wages at 2022, where it was one percent. Now they finally turned the corner, but they've had two bad years where basically employment was very high. And so people were working and falling mm -hmm. behind as they did it. And that didn't produce a lot of happiness. And it's the first time for a lot of people that they really experienced any 
inflation in this country for, yes. for many decades. You, so let's go back to what you pointed out. About the credit card debt is up. People are saving less. Housing prices yep. are soaring. How concerned are you about those trends? Uh, as I said, the household sector has kept the economy afloat in the second half of this year. So uh, that's a concern if whether they can keep it. The flip side to that is the business community has not. Um, one of my real concerns is that in every post-war recession, except the pandemic, the one we had most recently, and thus we tend to look at, every other recession begins with a downturn in business spending. We saw business fixed investment in the third quarter dead flat, not strong at all. Uh, that's a concern to me. The Fed continued to tighten, financial conditions tightened. What does the business community look like in the second half of this year and early next year? If they really give up and sort of cut back sharply, that's usually the trigger for households to get nervous and cut back as well. So I'm looking at this bit of a horse race, a business community that's weak and a, and a, uh, a household sector that's strong. Will the business community come up to the household or the reverse? That's the key. Yeah. And commercial real estate also um, really uh, in dire shape, too. Doug Holtz, Eakin, yes. thank you. In, in general, housing is a disaster. So we've got to hope for a better 2024 on the housing front. Keep an eye on that. Thank you so much. Well, let's discuss the politics of this with Ron Brownstein, the senior editor of The Atlantic and CNN senior political analyst. So, Ron, let's pick up on what we just discussed with Doug. How big of a role do you think partisan politics and the perception is playing and how well people say they feel about the Biden economy? First of all, I'd be happy to just sit and listen to the two of you talk about the economy. That was really uh, interesting. <laughs> As Doug said, it has been it has been a consistent factor. Uh, in, you know, for years now that the out party is usually a negative on the economy. I think it is more intense when Republicans are, are the out party. And Biden does have some genuine economic accomplishments, as, as you kind of alluded to. He, uh, tremendous job growth, low unemployment and an absolute investment boom in semiconductors, clean energy, electric vehicles tied to the big bills uh, that he passed. Uh, in his first two years. But inflation, Biana, has been a cloud just kind of obscuring all of that. You know, I, 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 the pollster, Stan Greenberg, who's been doing this since the 80s, the Democratic pollster, polls for parties all over the world, center-left parties, and, you know, often says that the ruling party just always underestimates how disruptive inflation is uh, to, to people and how, how disorienting uh, it can be. Now, as you pointed out, Wages are now rising faster than prices. The Fed has signaled that it is going to cut interest rates next year. The University of Michigan and the Conference Board and the Quinnipiac University all found a notable uptick in consumer confidence in December. So Biden may have some wind in his sails to improve his position, but he is starting in a deep hole in how people perceive the economy while he's been in office. Yeah, and businesses were really bullish on the Inflation Reduction Act as well. But we see Biden continue to push the term Bidenomics, which didn't really do well for him. But he, he used it again mm. last week, claiming that it led to a black small business boom in Wisconsin. Uh, do you think that this term and, and really putting his name on it is something he should carry forward into an election year? Um, this is an enormous debate in the Democratic Party. And really, the debate is not so much about the label, but about whether you should be trying to take credit for the positive trends that have occurred while people are still feeling negative overall, or whether Donald that Trump makes did you it. look out of touch. To it them. worked What's for that? Donald Trump. It worked for Donald Trump. Yeah. 
Yeah, but but they but they they were in a, that was but of course that was in a period where there was a much higher level of overall consumer confidence. I think people were you know overall you know feeling feeling better. Look, I I think the the, the as we said the the kind of the wind in the sails. Uh, it's likely, given the trends in inflation and interest rates, that Biden's approval on the economy and American attitudes about the economy are going to be better in November of 24 than they are today. But I think even with that improvement, it is likely that on election day, more if it's Donald Trump as the as a Republican nominee, more people will go into the ballot box thinking that Trump would be better for their bottom line than Biden. I think it's going to be hard for him to overcome that. Um, the precedent, though, is that in 2022, uh, an unusually large number of voters who were dissatisfied with the economy voted against the Republican alternative anyway, because they viewed it as too extreme. And I think in all likelihood, that is going to happen. If there is a path to a second term for Biden, it's not that people in the end consider him better on the economy than Trump. It's that he becomes more competitive on the economy and that there is a, a decisive slice of voters who think Trump might be better for their bottom line, better for their interests, but still view him as an affront to their values and won't vote for him anyway. So do you think up until this point, Biden has been too risk averse and maybe a little too sensitive to those who are not feeling great about the economy? And should he take more ownership of the positive headlines and in, in data points? Well, you know, I mean, look, I mean, that is, as I said, that is the perpetual debate. And you can see the pull and tug within the Democratic Party as he talks. I think where they are going and where much of the kind of the strategists in the party want them to go is to talk less about the macro economy, you know, the $600 billion in private sector investment that they've generated under for semiconductors and EVs and clean energy, and more about specific measures that can help families with their bottom line. For example, Biden is performing, holding his vote among seniors compared to 20, much better than he is among young people. And one reason is he has a lot of really tangible things that have come out of the Inflation Reduction Act that help them. Uh, Medicare negotiating for prescription drugs, uh, you know, $2,000 a year spending cap, $35 insulin, et cetera. So there is a line of argument the Democratic Party says, talk more about what you're helping to uh, do, to, uh, doing to help families make ends meet each week and less about a debate about the stewardship of the macro, macro economy. Yeah, there are a number of reasons he may not be polling well with, with young Americans, uh, student debt relief, and obviously geopolitical headlines as well. Ron exactly. Brownstein, great to see you. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, yep. Well, some are fans, some are fatigued. Call it whatever you want, but this person of the year is having the time of her life. You know who it is. More on Taylor Swift up next. Up next. And our pop lead, are you ready for it? Taylor Swift breaking another record this week, tying Elvis Presley as a solo artist with the most weeks spent at number one on the Billboard 200. While not everyone might be a Swifty, you can't deny she's been a huge part of 2023. Splashed across social media, football games, and magazine covers. CNN's Anna Stewart takes a look at an epic year for the 34-year-old and all her fans of all ages. She's certainly not the anti-hero of 2023. In fact, she's Time Person of the Year. The 
Even in Taylor Swift's wildest dreams, it would be hard to imagine greater success or bigger revenues. Not one, but three best-selling albums. They're not all exactly new. 1989 and Speak Now were re-recorded as Swift continues to reclaim ownership of her music. We're about to go on a little adventure together and that adventure is going to span 17 years of music. In March, Swift embarked on a record-breaking worldwide tour. It's expected to rake in more than $2 billion in North American ticket sales alone. Swift even helped bail out the box office in a difficult year with a movie version of the Eras Tour concerts. It made $96 million on its opening weekend in the US and Canada. Spotify and Apple Music have both named her Artist of the Year. There isn't an artist uh, on the planet who has achieved so much in a calendar year, and we at Apple Music, we felt the same way. And there was just no denying that, that you know, what she's achieved um, over the last 12 months in my lifetime, at least, from a, pro from a productivity and a quality point of view, is sort of unprecedented. Bloomberg says Swift became a billionaire in October, and Swiftfluence spread beyond music this year. The artist was spotted, not on the bleachers, but in a box, as she debuted a new relationship with Kansas City Chiefs player Travis Kels. love story boosted ticket sales and NFL TV ratings. It all comes down to a powerful bond Swift has forged with her fans, using hidden messages and clues known as Easter eggs in songs, performances and social media. Every time she puts anything out, there's a sense of anticipation that surrounds that experience and also the idea that we as fans can be invested in that by uncovering details, moving in different ways. I mean, the, the depth of Easter egg placement is sort of unbelievable. It, it just strengthens that connective tissue between the artist and the fan, which is what this is all about and something that Taylor Swift has been completely dedicated to her whole career. Do you think we have now hit peak Taylor Swift? If Taylor Swift's proven anything, even to people who don't listen to her music, is that she will not stop creating at the highest level. So no, only Taylor will decide um, you know, how and where she moves. And when she comes back, like every other time, she'll be dedicated and committed to it. That's one thing I really appreciate about Taylor Swift is when she comes out with a record or a tour, she's all in. The Era's tour continues through 2024. So we know all too well that it will probably be another year of Swift success. Anna Stewart, CNN, London. I can not be impressed by Taylor Swift. We'll be right back. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.